All right, welcome everybody to the Doomer Optimism Podcast. This is Anarcho Contrarian, or AC for short, uh, co-hosting today with the den mother of Doomer Optimism, <laughs> Ashley Colby. I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that uh, nickname to stick. Uh, we're here today with perhaps the most on the ground class commentarian. I, I don't know if that's a fair label, but that's that's my label, uh, and that is Chris Arnati. Chris is Twitter famous uh, for his photo diaries of working class folks, both in the U.S. and abroad, uh, as well as some thrilling snapping turtle content, which is my personal favorite. Uh, And Chris is also author of the fantastic book, uh, Dignity, which I hope we can recap a little bit today. Um, I wanted to start, Chris, just by, you know, maybe an introduction and backstory from yourself uh, to, to introduce our listeners who are not familiar with you. Personally, I think They'd be interested in, in your career change. You made a very significant career change in your life that brought you to your work now. So if you could give us the uh, Chris Arnotti 101, that would be a good way to start, I think. <laughs> yeah, three three career changes. So um, I um, I grew up in a small town in the South, um, academic parents. So um, in, my, in my lingo, I'm very front row. My dad was a professor of uh, history and my mother a librarian. Um, I'm one of seven kids, grew up in a, a small Catholic community in the South. Um, my dad was Jewish. My mom was Baptist. I was raised Catholic. So I always say I'm, I'm, I, I failed at three religions. Um, and um, um, I um, was something of a math, math whiz as a kid. Um, ended up getting, um, doing what for me was a path of least resistance was getting a PhD in path and um, particle physics at Johns Hopkins. Um, and then I did my first career pivot. Um, I wasn't particularly good at it or not, not committed to it enough. To, to stay in the field. So I went into uh, to banking, went into finance. Um, for 20 years, I was a bond trader. If you've seen the big short um, or if you've read Lyra's Poker, I actually went to the Lyra's Poker firm, Solomon Brothers. Um, I That was my life for 20 years. Um, <clears throat> and then at some point I became fed up with it. Um, uh, I mean, I think we can talk a little bit more about that, but roughly speaking, I sort of um, fell out of love with the field. Um, or had a, um, uh, I guess, a midlife crisis somewhere around 2005, 15 years into it. I milked it for another seven years because it paid well. And then um, by 2012, I couldn't milk it anymore. Um, and I, at that point, I was um, uh, doing what I always kind of wanted to do, which is kind of um, going on these very long walks. Um, I'd always gone on these long walks all my life kind of as a way to kind of um, relax or think or meditate. Um, but I was going like 20-mile walks through New York City. Um, and at some point I brought a camera along and um, um, during those walks, um, you know, originally being a geek, I kind of had this kind of like in you know, a checklist. I, I walked the entire length of the New York subway system above ground, um, all sorts of those sort of things. Um, um, and eventually um, I started realizing the people I met along the walks was much more interesting than the kind of, you know, completing a task. Um, and so um, uh, and that became especially clear when I brought up my camera when people would ask me to take their picture and then they'd tell me their life stories. So that kind of evolved in kind of, into, into kind of a like, you know, um, I guess photojournalism. I don't, I hate the term journalist, um, but just basically just interacting with people uh, along the way. And at some point along those kind of long walks, as the financial crisis happened in 2007, 2008, I kind of cared less about my work and more about my walking and ended up going to um, the Bronx, Hunts Point. And I went there specifically because people told me not to go. And here comes a, here comes a, a mower. The one day, one day a month, my hardest mode is here. <laughs> um, 
so is that is that too loud the mower okay so um, Good to go. i had gone into if your viewers know new york city um, hunts point is considered the poorest neighborhood in new york city it's considered I mean, HBO did a very salacious show that they seem to have um, deleted from um, their memory called uh, Hookers on the Point, um, um, which uh, talked about the prostitution and, I'm sorry, sex work and Hunts Point, although no sex worker calls themselves a sex worker unless they go to Vassar, they're prostitutes um, or dirty hoes as they call themselves. Um, so I went to Hunts Point and because people said specifically, whatever you do, don't go to Hunts Point. So I went there. Um, and I fell in love with it for a variety of reasons, but some of it was just, you know, it's very much a small community. So it's like a small town that kind of, it's a tongue of land that sticks out of the Bronx and kind of cut out from the rest of New York City. Um, and um, so it's very, it, it's very much a small community. Um, and so I, started, I basically spent three years kind of documenting uh, a family, a street family of um, heroin addicts and, and, and prostitutes, sorry, sex workers. Um, and um, that became kind of what my, my life was focused on. <laughs> well, something of, I guess, what one would call ethnography, you know, if you were um, an academic, you'd call ethnography, um, um, kind of doing um, ethnography without, without an IRB. So um, I was basically you know, uh, spending time um, writing the stories about um, this family of street addicts. Um, and at some point I kind of burned out on that and being, being a scientist, I kind of learned all these things. I wanted to see, to put it in scientific terms of what I learned in the Bronx, kind of the, the resiliency of, of humans, um, the kind of injustice of um, the economic system, um, kind of the, the importance of faith, the importance of the transcendent, um, you know, kind of uh, the importance at a personal level of being a, a qualitative person, not a quantitative person, kind of focusing on people, not numbers. Um, was true more than in just Hunt's point, or as I say, was it translationally invariant? But the kind of core truths I've learned in the Bronx was a translationally invariant. So I got in my van and started doing this kind of thing all over the United States. Um, I had the fortune or misfortune, depending on how you want to do it, see it that I put uh, 300,000 miles on my car. And so I just go to, you know, Gary, Indiana, Milwaukee. Um, and I went to the I went to the equivalent in every town I went to. I went to the equivalent of the Hunts Point, the places where people told you not to go, where lots of people live, but you know nobody visits. Um, and um, I had the misfortune of it happening during the the, the rise of Trump. Um, and so, what turned into a project about addiction and poverty, at some point pivoted into a bit addiction, uh, uh, also a project about the rise of Trump, in the sense that, by by sheer coincidence, not, not by coincidence, but not surprisingly. The places I went were places where early on I saw Trump, um, Trump being kind of far less laughed at than kind of um, uh, embraced, uh, especially in the um, or well, primarily in the white working class communities I went to, um, and so that that kind of work resulted in the book uh, Dignity, which I would like to also say only mentions Trump once, so it's not a political book. Um, um, but but the kind of foundations behind what gives rise to someone like Trump are there. Um, and then I kind of uh, um, switched from doing that for reasons that basically U.S. politics bores me um, and everything in the U.S. is about politics. Um, I started focusing on what I call the mega cities of the world. You know, again, you know, U.S. the world roughly has 5 billion people, about a 
about 1.5 billion that live in, live in towns that I don't think most Americans would know the names of. Um, and so I started um, kind of doing, um, now I'm doing what I call walking the world where I, um, I kind of go into these communities and I, I, rather than taking a van, and I'd always walked when I used my van, I'd go to Gary, Indiana, and then I just spend for four days or a week walking it. But um, now I just fly into like, you know, um, Illinois, and I spend a month walking the city, um, just literally walking as much as I can. Um, and uh, again, with a with a kind of larger focus on trying to look at um, learning and learning from from the, the interactions I have with people and from the, the interactions you get when you have to walk from a point A to point B and you can't kind of cheat by grabbing into a cab. Um, <clears throat> so that's where I am now. Um, I'm um, I'm leaving. This this you're you're um, you're going to Uruguay tonight, I believe. Uh, yeah. um, I'm leaving tonight for um, Myrtle Beach. <laughs> I'm going to walk for three days in Myrtle Beach, and then I'm going to Istanbul, and then from Istanbul I'm going to um, Bishkek, um, and then from Bishkek to Oman. So um, that's kind of where I am now. Um, okay, so something that this that we have in common is um, so I'm an, I'm a sociologist, and I've done basically only qualitative research. So like going to a place, doing some kind of ethnography, interviewing people. Um, and I think there's something among um, a lot of people who are attracted to this doomer optimism thing. A lot of people are homesteaders or small farmers. And a lot of us have this sense that there's just um, a way of interacting with the world by being in it that gives you a different kind of knowledge than what I call like spreadsheet brain. Um, I think I've made that. I think that is my own trademark. Um, I think I did make that up on accident on Twitter. So spreadsheet brain, you know, and so I'm we're arguing with all these people who are like, you know, you can't have small farms because how are you going to scale that? And, you know, everything has to be standardized. But there's something more insidious that, than just like making arguments on Twitter about spreadsheet brain um, where people aren't in the world. They don't have like full and embodied understanding of how things work. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that because I, I definitely share this sense of like you know to really understand something and you know for example with agriculture I have nine acres and just understanding how land works I, I would not have been able to read about it you yeah I mean that's kind of the whole that's the kind of the whole pivot of my intel of my arc of my career and I write about it a bit indignity about I, I don't call it spreadsheet brain I call it kind of front row uh, it's, I, it's kind of a secular tech technocrat right <clears throat> um I mean, I can go at this in a variety of directions, but I would say that, you know, um, it's very easy to to lose empathy when you're doing a spreadsheet because what you're doing is, um, you know, I mean, what you're doing is is you're missing the transcendent. You're missing anything that can be can't be measured. If you if you miss it, by definition, it's not valuable. So what you're to put it in kind of in the language when I argue with them, the language they can understand. You're missing what you're missing the externalities. Um, you don't ever measure them. So what you do is perfect example I use is free trade. So free trade is so when you have spreadsheet brain, what you do is you simply look at you, you have a row of positives, you have a row of negatives, and you sum it up. And if it's positive, you do it. Um, and the problem with that is the negatives. First of all, you're mismet you're mismeasuring the negatives, um, but most of all, you're just missing most of the negatives. So perfect example of free trade. You say with free trade, okay, we're going to do free trade because there are there are winners and there are losers. The winners out out out, out um, outweigh the losers. It's a net positive. We're going to do it. What you've missed is 
in your loss, you say, okay, we lose 200,000 jobs and, you know, um, in the agricultural sector, sector in Mexico. Um, we've lost uh, three, 300,000 industrial jobs in the industrial section of the United States. Um, <clears throat> but net, net, the, we've gained more jobs in the uh, agriculture, you know, in this sector here, and there's more money in this sector. And so it all, all comes up to be positive. But when you've lost, so let's, most people, let's focus on the U.S. first, because that's what most people understand. When you lose 300,000 industrial jobs in the U.S., what you've lost is um, a lot of everything. So you've taken these small towns. You can look at Portsmouth as an example. I mean, you, so much, I mean, I can do Gary, Indiana. I mean, most people focus on the white working class, but let's talk about the black working class. Let's talk about Milwaukee's North Side, where, you know, I've interviewed people. They literally could walk from one job to the other. Um, you know, those those jobs are gone. Um when the jobs when the jobs are gone, what happens is, you know, families fall apart um, because um, it may it may may not be um, particularly not you know I, I don't think the left necessarily wants to hear this, but um, what you know what what creates a stable um, community is a, a a person who can walk generally a male who can walk out of high school into a job that gives them the stability to have a house, and then once he has the house, he can get married and they can raise a family. Um, when you lack that stability, that whole that whole fucking equation falls apart. And one of the universals, and I'm not a big big fan of universals, but there one of the few universals is people want kids, and so they'll have kids before they can put their economic house in order. And so now all of a sudden you have kids out outside of wedlock, you know. And look, I'm sorry, you know, I, I, I as much as a libertarian as you want to be, and as much as you want to be woke, um, two two functional adults raising a child is better than one functional adult raising a child. It's as simple as that. So that falls apart. Um, this, and so what happens is the, the whole community has this vacuum that just starts, you know, without the stability of the economic, without the stability of being able to walk out of high school into a job and, 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 and put your economic house in order to build your family, to build, you know, this. Once, once that falls apart um, and, and people start becoming transients, economic migrants in their own country, having to jump from place to place, this, this vacuum hits. And when that vacuum hits, in comes drugs. In comes this kind of sense of meaninglessness, you know. So that's not measured in their in their spreadsheet. Um, you know, they they you know now it's being measured with the de death of despair. You know, fifteen years later, but it was twenty years later, but it's definitely predictable if you would actually if you had actually spent any time in these communities, you knew what the damage was going to be done. Uh, let's go to Mexico. They say, well, you know, the the small the small um, peasant farmings. You know, people forget that you know. Um, U.S. won big in agriculture because the, our, our mega farms could beat the Mexican small farms. So Mexico has also had a real problem where they've lost their small their small farmers have been have been economically unable. Think about that way of life. You had a family farm that was we've undercut that, and so they have to move to Mexico City. Um, and so now you have all the problems you have of these mega cities being attacked, and nobody again, you know, spreadsheet doesn't capture any of that. Um, it doesn't again. It doesn't capture loss of meaning, like you know. I, uh, this is partly why I gave up arguing politics in the U.S. because, the, the, it, especially on Twitter and even more in academics, when you have the IRB who's scared to talk to people, um, they don't. Ethnography is wrong because you know you can't. You're going to harm people when you talk to them. That ooh. So um, um, the problem. So consequently, everything is quantitative now. Um, and so when you know, I used to say, you know, why don't you argue with blank person on Twitter? I was like, I'm going to lose because the very comp. But the very definition of debate, the whole structure of debate is beta. You have to throw data, 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 and I. Um, and, and so, also, 
they're just, I can't get them to see it. Like, you know, they they have spreadsheet brain. They're just going to simply say, well, you know, there is less, less poverty in the world now than there was before. But I mean, we're, what about the lack of meaning? <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, people have more stuff, <laughs> but, you know, that's not the only goal. They have, a, they have, so what they have is they have a spreadsheet leads to a single thing, which is to, you measure the winners and losers in economic terms. And, and then you try to maximize um, the economic growth. So it's, it's, it's a very, very narrow framework of thinking about what we want in life. And it completely, utterly, um, by, um, by definition, ignores the transcendent, ignores the not what I call non-quantified, non, um, non-credential forms of meaning, faith, place, family, and, and we, we can put race in there and talk about that. It's a touchy subject, but that's a non-credential form of meaning in, in, in the sense that it gives people a community that, um, that values, you want to be a, people want to be a valued member of something larger than themselves. Um, and, you know, so what, what, what spreadsheet, um, what spreadsheet, uh, uh, lawyer, would you call a spreadsheet what? Sorry, spreadsheet brain. What spreadsheet brain leads to is it's extraordinarily materialistic. It's this positivistic, materialistic view of life, which, um, you know, I mean, you know, that, that, and, and there are two sides of the coin that, you know, if you if you have a very materialistic look at life, there are basically two sides you can be on. You can be a capitalist and say, um, you know, or you can be, or you can be a Marxist. Um, but neither of them allows you to basically say that what's actually important is not just the material, but the non-material. And I think, again, one of the, one of the things that is, it, it, it's, it's almost impossible to explain to spreadsheet brain is like, you know, non-material matters to people. Um, you know, that's, you get spreadsheet. I think it's kind of a self, I, it's kind of this feedback loop where the people who, who end up going to spreadsheet being are nerds who are scared of people in the first place. Um, and then once they get in there, then they're, they're, then they're not going to get out of it because they're going to reinforce the thing that tells them that actually interacting with people is a bad thing. And all those things you learn about from interacting with people is bad. Like I, I, I walked into Hunts Point. Uh, I wasn't a Sam Harris atheist. I wasn't a, you know, because uh, I'm just not a nasty person that way in terms of mocking other people. But I was, a, I was called myself agnostic. You know, at, at the age of 13 or 14, I mocked religion in a way that Sam Harris might mock it now. Um, but I certainly, I grew out of that and realized, you know, to have at least, you know, I don't generally mock people. But I certainly was in the, in the and, you know, what I had, if you had asked me, you know, point blank, right before I walked in Hunts Point, what was I going to find? I said, I'm sure going to find lots of atheists because if there's anybody who has, like, you know, perspective of how, how bad the world is and that there is no God, it's going to be people in, in Hunts Point who, who are literally living on the street and, you know, and having, having to suck dick for money. Um, but instead, what I found with people who are far more faith, who are, who are, who are imbued with faith, not necessarily theologically sound faith, but it was, you know, it was, it was a, it was a, it was a mashup of kind of um, uh, uh, Catholicism, um, uh, Muslim faith, coupled with um, the um, the um, the uh, this odd spiritual. You know, it was just, but it was faith um, in their own in their own thing. It, it, you know, and so in the way they thought about the world was a very experiential way. Um, you know, if if, if I have a problem, I'm very front row. I'm very much spreadsheet brain person. If I have a problem, you know, if I get if I get ill, if I, I face a new new problem, my first thing is I'm off to the library. I'm going to study it. <laughs> I can figure out <laughs> if they have a problem. They're going to start talking to their friends. They're going to start asking. They're going to start praying. They're going to kind of use their 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 um 
their, their kind of informal network of kind of experiences um, to solve it or, or go talk to their, um, you know, go talk to their um, minister. And so I think it's, it's, it's two different very ways, you know, to think about it. And I think the, the spreadsheet brain, I call them the front row. Um, because um, they're, they're the kids who always sat in the front row, and they weren't necessarily they weren't necessarily smart enough to, to, to sit in the back and get get by. They had to be the teacher's pet and do all the right things. Um, but the, kind of the front row, the spreadsheet brain kind of has won. They've won the world, um, and so um, it, it's extraordinarily destructive, materialistic, um, and 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 in some very nihilistic view of the world that all you all you want is stuff, and once you have enough stuff, you're happy. You know, I mean, no, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty clear that when, you know, if stuff above a certain threshold, people love to have stuff, you know, there's no doubt that once you get above kind of like, you know, a certain level of income, it's not, you can, a new level of happiness is reached, but, 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 you know, but, but happiness is not simply about having more stuff. And that's just so, I mean, that's so clear about when I, what I see when I walk and talk to people. Absolutely. And quick thoughts, you know, my personal thoughts on spreadsheet brain is that, you know, it forces a binary, you know, it's either a, a positive, it either lands in the positive column or the negative column. It's either right or it's left. It's either black or it's white, racist or anti-racist, left, right, whatever. Um, you know, and the world just doesn't, doesn't function like that. But as you said, you know, these folks are in control. And so, you know, perhaps that's a reason why we have the divides, the binary divides that we have uh, now. You touched, you touched on so many things that I want to get to and so many things that are speaking to me directly. But, you know, maybe stepping back a little bit, we, we got into the, the front row versus back row. You know, I, I wanted to try to touch on before we go deeper, you know, the overall theme or takeaway from your book. You know, what would you consider like the TLDR version of your book? What what I or maybe what perhaps took you most off guard in, in the development of that book? And maybe as a follow-up question, you know, and this is a little bit of a leading question, but what what does the front row class get wrong about the back row class? I mean, well, the the kind of bumper, the two bumper stickers I say from my book, at least, you know, are um, everybody, and I mentioned one was everybody wants to be a value member of something larger than themselves. Um, um, and two is, um, it, and I, when I call it my, my, my front row is basically highly educated postgraduate degrees, you know, me. <laughs> um, you know, um, Ashley, <laughs> um, I mean, you can be, you know, it's not like the entire front row is, you know, has the same brain, but it's, it's, it's people who have, um, generally, you know, um, elite colleges, um, um, are, 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 are geographically very transient. There, there, there's a, there's a huge overlap with trans, uh, with careerism there. And then there's also, um, uh, um, uh, a generally a secular event. Um, but, um, in general, what I say about them is they don't understand the people they're advocating for. Um, so you get this huge gap between where, you know, one of the, one of the most, there, there are two very, very like, they don't understand how dumb they are when they say them. There's one is, you know, people are voting against their, their self-interest. I mean, what the fuck? <laughs> like, no, maybe you don't understand their interests. <laughs> like the arrogance of saying that someone's voting against their self-interest, you know, is just, you know, phenomenal. Um, now they're pretty sure what they want, um, um, but the um, you know, and the other one is just you know, just move. Like if you if you if, you know, like this idea that that place, um, you know, because it doesn't matter to us, the front row, it shouldn't matter to them. But place is about a, again a non-credential form of meaning. Like it's something that's immensely. What I mean by not you don't have your gifted place at birth. 
Like it's a, it's a form of meaning that you're you're born into. So I understand, you know, in, in my career in banking, you know, we're, we were all the same, even though we were all from different parts of the world. Um, we had all had post high school, we had all had pretty much the same, same, you know, you, you can have, a, you can have a, a Brahmin kid from India who works on Wall Street, who, you know, basically had the same after, after, after it's like second year of college, we had the same lives, even though I grew up in small town myself, we all left our hometown, we all went through, we all w wove our way through elite institutions, we all kind of, you know, read the same, same literature, thought about the same, you know, thought, had the same sense of what's sacred and what's profane. Like, you know, we had the same worldview um, and uh, it's completely and utterly detached from you know, 90, 94% of the world. Um, and yet we think we know what's best for them. And so in a sense, it's an extraordinarily elitist attitude. And so I, I, I find it humorous. I, I find it less galling to see in, in some ways the, the conservatives, I mean, because they're outright elitist and they, you know, they admit it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a... It's kind of the left to, you know, act like we're, 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 you know, it's very patronizing. We're, we're, we, we're going to help, we're going to help the working class for, we know what's best for them. And should they vote separately from what we think is best for them? It's just that they need more education. They'll figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. You went, you went to a place that I wanted to go to and, and, um, and that's, you know, hyper, hyper mobility. And if I can share a quote from your book, which really, you know, uh, summarizes what you just said. Uh, you said we were mobile. We we being the front row. We were we were mobile, having moved many times before, and we would move again. Staying put was seen as a failure. You advanced in your career, and that required not being tied to one place. Our community was global, allowing us to proclaim it to be diverse, despite every resident sharing the similar path beyond high school, which is which is really what you just said. And and that uh, touches on. Uh, my particular intellectual pet project, which is, you know, the, the negative externalities of, of the religion. And I really do see it as a type of religion of, of hypermobility and really upper mobility in a lot of ways. You know, people seem so eager to discard the places in the community ties and their family, frankly, in favor of mobility, you know, without regard for those negative externalities that, that happen uh, as a result of their choices. You know, can you, can you, unpack that a little bit more and specifically like i want to hear more about your thoughts um on what happens to those places that are left behind like when there when there is a generational uh exodus if you will which which in a lot of ways happened to, to my generation sort of uh, early millennials i guess if you will like all those people are are gone you know all the people in the hometowns of the places that i came from left uh, and didn't, in some cases are going back because of COVID, but, but mostly they'll never come back. Those family ties are broken and those places are hollowed out. So what, what is your take? What, what more do you have to offer there about places? Yeah, I mean, again, place is extraordinarily valuable, you know, and, and um, what, I, I kind of go, when I used to, when I was doing the U.S., I, I do it less now in global cities because it's a little more complicated, um, but the, the three, three institutions I went to in the U.S., and every city I went to, I went to um, I went to churches, houses of worship, whatever whatever religion was of, of the community I went. So I spent a lot of time in a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of Pentecostal churches mostly. Um, but I also went to um, McDonald's, which became a theme in my book, um, because it's, in some senses it's the only place still functional. And um, your, your audio, Chris, I think, got a little wishy-washy. Are you there? Yep, good to go. Yeah, so I, you know, I became famous for McDonald's because I McDonald's are one of 
you know, one of the few sources of community in places that have, you know, have had their community shattered. And then I go to community colleges. Um, and um, one of the things that's really fascinating is when you go to community colleges or you go to these high schools, you, I, remember, I remember in particular one in one case of Lumberton, um, Lumberton, North Carolina, which is a really fascinating town. Ended up ended up being ended up being what I call an OOC county. They voted for Obama twice and then went went Trump. Um, uh, Lumberton might probably be the most diverse, one of the most unique countries counties in, in the United States. It's the poorest county in North Carolina, but it's almost evenly one third African American, one third white, and then one third Native American. They've got the Lumberton Indians, so there's this very unique dynamic there. But um, they lost their mill towns, you know, like everybody did back in the 80s and 90s, and it hasn't been the same since. And so I went to this, um, uh, I went to this community college, and in the community college, there was this one-year program for the, for advanced high school kids. It was basically 12th grade um, for for the elite kids, and they're wonderful kids. You know, they're um, they're they're very diverse. They're they're representatives from the African American community, from the white community, from the Indian American, and a few Mexican American kids. But they're all going to leave, and um, you know I can't fault them. Like I'm, I'm not, I'm the last person that I, I, I did that. I left my small town. I couldn't, I couldn't wait to get the fuck out. Um, and so I can't fault them. I'm, I'm a careerist. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm front row. Um, but it was also sad to know that um, we basically have the sorting mechanism now. The meritocracy, what I call the faux educational meritocracy, of the U.S. has this sorting mechanism. That is basically a vacuum cleaner that goes around the country and sucks up people who are, you know, you know, smart, and deposits them in New York City, D.C., um, you know, um, Austin, you know, L.A. Um, and again, I can't fault these kids. You know, good for them, but none of them, absolutely none, of them said they would come to, want to come back to Lumberton. And then so it's become a self-perpetuating process where now. You know, the kid who might have come back and been a, a dynamic mayor, um, eventually, you know, 15 years down the line, might have been a, you know, district attorney, might have, you know, might have, you know, whatever, they're gone. Um, and, you know, one of the things we, we, I think, we in the United States, at least on the left, are extraordinarily uncomfortable talking about is people are different. There, there, there is a spectrum out there. Uh, abilities. And so um, what's happening is, um, and, and we're sorting by education. And so um, we, we have this massive sorting system by education, which, and, and, we, and then we're rewarding education. You have the skill set to be someone who's good at, has its self-discipline to be good in, and takes to being in school, um, then you're going to be rewarded. And if you're going to be somebody who doesn't necessarily have the um, patience or that's just not your thing. You, and you don't take to being in school, you're, you're going to be left left behind, so to speak. Um, they may not mind being left behind. They may want to be behind. But so it's going to cause these cities to lose the self-sorting system where you're going to have people who are, the back row is going to become um, more concentrated. The front row is going to become more geographically concentrated. And we're going to reward. And since the front row is making the rules um, and getting all the rewards, we're going to reward the front, you know, these, these towns. And so we're, we're by definition, we're, we're, we're creating this environment which is um, highly, high, very unconducive to creating local communities. Um, and so in their mind, you know, one of the most insipid things about the kind of educational sorting system we have, the, the, the educational meritocracy we have is, you know, um, we have this kind of 
enough hard work, enough, enough study, enough books, you know, you can become elite. You, you know, you can, you can join the monarchy. Um, you know, um, is that the, the corollary of that is if you don't make it, you're a failure, it's your fault and you're a loser. And so, you know, one of the big themes in my other book is, you know, what the dialogue we have on in the front row and the elites has doesn't really match the dialogue in, in back. In, in general, it doesn't, there's not a lot of, there's not a lot of, you know, I, I you know, people are not proud that the damn I voted sticker on their, on their, on their, you know, feel like they're more of a superior, like there's just a detachment in terms of um, how, how engaged, quote, the back row and the front row are. But if you're kind of a working class kid flipping hamburgers in Northside Milwaukee, um, even though you don't know what necessarily what what you know people in Harvard University are saying about you, you do know they're, they're, they're they they think you're a loser, um, and so that's that stigma, a sense of being stigmatized, is certainly out there. The sense of um, they know that they're that people think of them as losers, and so you know it's kind of like addiction when there's a thing I call owning the stigma. Once people start once you stigmatize something, once you call them a loser, once you call them a racist, once you call them whatever, once you call them dumb, once you call them an addict, at some point they're like, okay, uh, that's it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna own that. They take pride in that, you know. And so they start, you know, owning the stigma, as they call it. You see that a lot in addiction, like you know, you call me a, you call me a whore. I'm a dirty whore. Yay, you know, I'm gonna start acting like it. And so in these towns, it's come kind of this again the feedback loop of they know that they know they're being mocked. They know that you know. Um, they, people think they're a loser, and it starts kind of weighing down on the community and becoming a sense of like, okay, you know, what's the point then? What's the point of living? You know, and so that's kind of where you get to the these deaths of despair and this addiction. There's kind of the sense of, um, you know, the sense of being stigmatized and the sense of being kind of mocked. Um, and then again, you couple that with economic decay and it's kind of and the family and family decay. It's just you know, um, and, and a lack of religion once once because again. The, 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 what does filter down is culture filters down. And so one of the, one of the more interesting things is if you look at the way um, the, the front row of the elites live, um, they don't live at all like they, they say, they, you know, they, they, they stay in stable marriages by and large, you know, <laughs> like they have two kids raising, two, two parents raising, raising kids. Um, they live kind of relatively um, conservative lives. And yet, you know, they say, well, you know, anything goes. You can be who you are, be whatever you want to be. And then that filters down into complete chaos. Um, and so it, it's, it's, it's a really bad situation in these towns. And, um, you know, the whole just move thing is just so, so offensive because, like, you know, I remember talking to this young woman in Portsmouth, Ohio. She was like 17, 18. Um, and, you know, Portsmouth has been suffering for, you know, 60 years has been losing population. Um, and yet, you know, family is extremely important, um, but her family's somewhat dysfunctional. I mean, that's, you know, again, um, and, um, she would love to stay there, but, you know, she also knows that staying there, it's, it's, it's hard, it's a hard choice. I stay here where, 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 where you know, my meaning set comes from versus knowing that it's going to be hard. It's going to be a struggle. And so you're putting these people in a no-win situation. Um, yeah, I can, yeah. oh, I can ahead, jump Ash. in there. Yeah, so um, so this is the Doomer Optimism podcast. So um, we like to uh, um, go pretty uh, clear-eyed into um, analyzing what crises exist, what kind of doom there is out there that we have to navigate. And then we talk a lot about like 
what can be done? What what can we do despite all these giant like institutional um, issues? Um, and I just want to share um, just yesterday. So my brother is like what we call I think I guess I'm, in our little circle, we call them the professional managerial class, the PMCs. My brother's like a PMC. I, I call them the, front rows. So same thing. Yeah, yeah same thing. Um, he went to the Coast Guard Academy as an officer, was in the Coast Guard, got his a master's in business and engineering, um, you know, did this whole arc out of Chicago. And then he came back and now he is like the public works coordinator for a small um, town uh, outside of Chicago, like, you know, a suburb, LaGrange, Illinois. And um, it is such a wholesome job. I mean, he's like he's like driving me through the town and he's like, I'm in charge of these down trees. Like I talk to the community all the time. There was a water main break. I'm meeting all the neighbors. Um, and I think about that example, like as a white collar example. And then I think about a lot of the people who are um, uh, attracted to Doomer Optimism, talk about like getting into crafts, getting into trades, maybe getting into small scale agriculture um, and really just swimming against the tide. Now it's hard to do that, um, but these are the kinds of optimistic things we talk about. I'm wondering if what is the, what is the Chris Arnady uh, optimism, if anything? <laughs> uh, I'm pretty negative um, because it's kind of why I say a policy debate because it's like moving deck chairs around the sinking ship because I think, I mean, I don't want to be, you know, I'm, I'm intellectually at least, I'm one turtle down, um, you know. I mean, I, I I think these are all reflective of kind of a, a crisis of meaning. And, and some people call it a crisis of loneliness, um, you know, um, a crisis of physical community. And so what I was saying is I think the United States, when you have spreadsheet brain, you, the policy class has spreadsheet brain, they, they, they make, they, they, not necessarily out of, um, out of um, bad will, they, they actually more dangerously think they're doing the right thing. And so once someone's doing, someone's doing bad, who thinks they're doing wrong, that's, that's even more dangerous. Um, you know, um, you, you, you create policies that's not conducive to creating community. And so um, very, so, in that sense, I'm, I'm negative because um, I, I think um, spreadsheet brain is in control. Um, it, it's never going to see, um, uh, it's always going to create these negative externalities because they can't see them. Um, they just can't measure them, so they're not there. So I think we're going to continue to have this kind of hyper-materialistic policy that just kind of um, you know, crushes anybody who tries to do something that has any, any non-economic benefit. Um, I mean, you know, you know, the, the mega, mega friend, you know, I, I'm, I celebrate McDonald's, but I only celebrate McDonald's not because I like me mega corporations, but because it's, it's, it's meant to show that, so I'm getting my optimism piece here, it's meant to show that humans are by very, by, by just, you know, called biology, call it whatever, are, are need community. Um, and so the whole point of the McDonald's thing is to highlighting the community of McDonald's is to point out that people need community. They need it so much that they'll they'll form communities and places that are entirely transactional. McDonald's is meant to be a, a quick, you know, is, McDonald's is dying to, designed to be, um, you know, this it's almost neoliberal uh, uh, um, machine that you know get your food, leave, but no people stay and they hang out and talk, and so that just shows you that you if you provide humans with this ban this ban this this landscape of banal banal franchises, they'll form community in it. I mean, they'll form community in anything, you know. Um, it's like my work with with uh, street addicts. You know, one, the only thing I regret about my book is not putting more humor in it because it just felt out of the place. But I wish I had because there was a lot of fucking humor in it. 
you know, people people are pretty resilient. They can make the best of bad situations. We're providing them a bad situation and they're making the best of it. So my optimism is that people will adapt. You know, it's going to be it's going to be really, really hard to do. But people who want community can still do it. It's just not necessarily conducive to it. Um, but in some ways, I think, you know, how do you break spreadsheet brain? You know, how do you um, how do you, you know, change a culture and you know so well, I, I don't think i don't think i put it in my book but um my last chapter is about going back to my hometown um and you know there's also just um this sense of i don't want to sound like an old conservative and where i you know but you know there's a sense at least in some past in the in the past you know the the, the you know the 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 elites in the town, you know, the elites in the town had some connection to the town, and you know, the factory was locally owned, and um, so there was some sense of obligation between the owners and the community. Um, now you have, you know, who owns? So my town, the town adjacent to me, literally had two two orange juice factories in it. It was in Central Florida, and that employed everybody to some degree. Everybody, in some senses, was related to that. Um, and the owner of the orange, one of the orange juice factories, um, I went to, I went to this shitty public high school with the owner's kid, you know, I mean, we knew he, we knew the owner had money. Um, but you know, because when, when the, when the, when the kids reached the age of 16, they got a new, a new pickup truck. Um, but that, you know, and they lived in a big ranch house, on, on a lot, but you know, when I, when I eventually grew up and realized that they were they are a fortune 500 family of just like, you know, it was stunning to find out this was a family that actually had, you know, fortune 500 money, but was living in the community. So sending the kids to public school were interacting, you know, the kids, the kids had to work on the orange groves, you know, um, to, you know, be part of the community. Um, you know, two generations later, the kids are going to private school in London now, like, you know, the next generation has moved on and they sold the factory to like, you know, some Brazilian conglomerate, and, you know, um, and then eventually the factory was closed and moved to someplace else. Like, you know, how do you teach that sense of obligation of, you know, the wealthy to the, to the poor, the sense of being part of the same community? How do you change a culture that says, you know, uh, I'm not going to sell my, I'm not going to sell my company to the highest bidder. Um, you know, you look at the whole private equity thing in Wall Street, it's awful. They come in, they, you know, because again, that spreadsheet brain, how can you make the most profit? Well, you know, smaller, smaller individual factories that family, you know, community run or whatever are not, not nearly as profitable. They're not as efficient. It's this cult of efficiency that, you know, again, rings out of cult, rings out of society, anything at all that's not material um, or, 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 or conducive to, to making more money. And so it, if you have a family farm, you know, if you, um, at this point to have a family farm, um, to own a small bodega, to all those things, you are basically that has to be a, that's a that, that's a lifestyle choice. That's not an economic choice, and the economic the economic reality will crush you eventually. So I, I look I look I look at my you know I'm upstate New York now. There there are a lot of I'm you know about um, 120 miles outside of New York, and um, it's an evenly split community between um, you know it's 50 50 between. Um, kind of people like me who fled New York City, who are front row, spreadsheet brain, who careerist, and then kind of locals. 
who aren't. And um, people who family farm now more and more are people who are doing it for lifestyle, who have a lot of money can do it as a lifestyle choice, um, who, who can who can weather the economic storm. If you want to just do it for, you know, as, as, a, as a life, if you don't have a lot of um, cultural capital or you don't have a lot of economic capital, that's becoming harder and harder to do. Um, and again, it's, the reason is because Spreadsheet Brain has said, and I, I look, I can read all the papers. I can understand them. I can agree with them. I have a PhD in physics. I used to be working on Wall Street. It is true that, you know, massive, massive ag, ag business is more efficient. You know, it produces more calories, more protein per whatever than small farms do. Um, you know, and that's kind of what they just want to max and min things. They want to maximize, you know, um, profits and minimize inefficiency. And then that, that kind of meat grinder, family farms and small communities don't have a chance. Um, so I'm not particularly optimistic um, in that sense. I, I think the problems are almost too big and too intractable to change. And a lot of it's the spreadsheet brain you talk about. A lot of it's the, the cult, the kind of the culture that follows out of the secular spreadsheet brain, which is that, you know, efficiency, 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 make more, more, more. And that's just not conducive to local communities. And so they're going to get crushed. Um, the optimistic side of me is that, you know, um, people are resilient, you know, they'll figure, you know, you know, pe you know people can, 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 can find communities and, and, and build, you know, online communities, what have you over time. But I'm not, then I don't, I think that's kind of a, you know, people, people cope, <laughs> not a, it's going to get better. Yeah. I wonder if you think, uh, at all, you know, maybe look into your crystal ball a little bit, if you think at all about what constraints uh, might be coming down the pipe that might force uh, a decentralization or a descaling of the way that that we live. And, you know, we talk a lot about that in in the DO sphere. You know, uh, whether it be uh, economic uh, constraints or uh, environmental constraints, political constraints that either might incentivize or force um, a descaling and decentralization. Um, do you, do you do you sympathize with that at all? And, and if so, do you think you know the smaller places that you've seen, you know, the secondary, tertiary, and, and small rural places that you've seen? Do you think that they might be positioned to thrive in some ways, um, given sort of the changes in scale that might come? Oh, and maybe just let me add a, an example. Um, I don't know if you have walked through Detroit at all recently, but I've um, read about, and I'm from. The south side of Chicago so there's some similarities but I've read about these like small scale farms popping up where people are just like so destitute we're going to just do something and there is like this um hopefulness in the doomer optimism sphere of like John Michael Greer's writing I'm not sure if you're familiar with him but he says collapse now and avoid the rush so like you know getting back to place getting back to community but sort of forced by like failures of industrial society to then, okay, well, we have no other choice. I mean, if we don't do this kind of thing, we're not gonna get fresh food in these hollowed out neighborhoods of Detroit. So we're gonna start these small scale farms. Like that, this is the this is the idea at least that we're, we kick around a lot. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not saying it's it's all, you know, all for naught because I think, you know, um, I think you can still, you know, perfect example is um, there's a, you know, um, a community next to me that you know who the Bruder, Bruderhofs are? You ever heard of the Bruderhofs? They're um, they're a um, uh, uh, anti-Baptist group um, who are basically closest thing to um, religious Marxists as you'll find. They um, they're 
um, their religious group um, who um, were kicked out of Germany in the 20s and they, they actually went to Uruguay, uh, or I think they went to Paraguay. Um, but um, um, they have a few, they have two communes here near my house. Um, they, they, they publish the, um, um, uh, uh, they have a literary mag magazine they've had for a hundred years called, Por uh, what's it called, Porch, I think it is. Um, in any case, they don't, they don't believe in money. There's, they don't have money. They, everybody lives and they share all their, their wealth. Um, um, so you can do it. You know, you, you can still live a very um, traditional, if you want to call it, um, life built around community, built around faith, built around place. Um, but it's a lot of work. It's, again, I mean, you know, it's like swimming upstream. Um, and it also requires, and I think this is going to, this is hard. It requires not giving a fuck about what's going on in New York City, you know. And so, I'm that's gonna, basically but, all of us. So the, yeah, but, but I'm gonna push like back our a political resistance is like I don't give a shit what the WEF is doing. Like I just want to go as far away from that as yes, possible. I want to be I, outside I, of their grasp. I'll, I'll push back a little about what AC was saying when he's saying that um you know that kind of spreadsheet brain or whatever is something of a religion or or um, efficiency is something religion is it's a if it, it and this is why uh, it's gonna be a long-winded answer so stay with me for a second um it's failure where it fails relative to religions is extraordinarily important it doesn't give you a metaphysical answer right um it and one of the things that religion does is religion like you know anthropology sociologists and anthropologists will say there are kind of three things that religion does one is it provides community one is it provides regulation and the third is very important is the most it's kind of got a metaphysical solution it's got so to put it in kind of more um you know uh more um mundane terms it it makes you feel like you've lived you lived your life worth it like i i if i if i die a happy catholic i'm going to feel like i'm going to i'm going to live forever i'm going to go to heaven and there's going to, my life was okay here because i have an afterlife um you need to feel like when you die like what you're doing is 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 is, is worth something you've lived a sacred life the problem with kind of you know and a lot of people talk about wokeism and you know front rowism as kind of or spreadsheet brain as a religion it, it does it does the integration in some senses um and not very well um it does something of the right thing but it has no metaphysical answer and so, you know, no, somebody who dies a committed careerist, right, can't really say, what's, this, what's your legacy? What's, what's your legacy? Like, you know, you know what, where's your sense of, where's, where can you point to to say, I lived a sacred life? Um, and what they more and more glob onto is politics. So that's why you see the resistance thing. It's very much, it very much is, I, I may be a careerist, but God damn it, I fought against fascism rising in the United States. And when I, when I die, they'll be on my tombstone. I can, like, I can die happy knowing that I, I made sure Trump wasn't elected for his second term. Um, so the point, of, here's what I'm going to say is they won't leave you alone because it's, it, in that sense, politics has become their, has become their metaphysical answer. Relig they, have a, they have a religious attitude towards politics now. And so consequently, Anybody who strays from the, you know, kind of the, the, the sacred doctrine of the front row, that you have to be a careerist, you have to be into safetyism, you have to be in efficiency, all those kind of, you know, things that look good on a spreadsheet, they're going to politically attack because it's, you know, how dare you run an inefficient farm, bitch? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> you know that, that's profane. You know, you're, you're leading to Trumpism. So I think, 
it's very hard in that sense. That's why I'm a little bit more negative because they're not going to leave you alone. You know, one of the one like one of the small farms here. You know, one of the signs of kind of uh, because you know the, the bureaucratic state is a perfect example. Is so they're always got to figure out. They always have to be doing something to justify their existence, right? So I, I'm friends with a guy who owns an orchard here. You know, family that's owned the orchard for like 150 years, right? Like the number of new regulations every every year are just cr- you know they they came out recently and raided his farms to look check check his ladders like they had installed a new ladder code you know because like you know and it's just it's just like death by a thousand bureaucratic cuts and so he has to be aware of what's happening in the Department of Health or the you know safety worker blah 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 because um, you know just running your family farm now means you, you're interacting with the bureaucratic state all the time. You know, I, I, I raised chickens for a while. I was like, Hey, you know, I, I got 30 eggs, a, you know, a day. I, I can't eat 30 eggs a day. I think I'll sell them. Nope. You can't sell them. You need a blank machine to show that they're the, you know, that they're they're. If I just put out a sign in my door saying I want to sell eggs, uh, the Department of Health would close me down in like uh, two weeks because you have to have a machine to check that your eggs, blah, 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 this and that. So I think that's kind of where my, 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 where, I, where I'm concerned is that they've taken, they approach this thing as a religion. They approach politics as, is in some sense their metaphysical, their, their reason for existing um, to save you from eat, to save you from selling, to save the world from you selling an egg that might get somebody sick, you know. Um, I mean, it was just the contrast, you know, the place I spent a month in recently was Hanoi. And, you know, it was just, everybody can start their own business in their, in their living room. People can sell eggs, you know, pe- people can catch fish in the ocean and catch fish in the pond and go to the market and chop it up and sell it. You know, so you can actually make a living um, as a, and most people do, many people do as, as doing your own thing, um, growing vegetables in, in your backyard. And then selling them in the U.S., you can't do that. And so, uh, I don't want to be too negative. Um, I don't want to be too depressing to listeners. But uh, I think, in some senses, doing your own thing means at some point, you know, two years down the road, you, the Department of Health is going to raid your farm because whatever, I new codes. Yeah, what's what's the adage? You may not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you. Yes, exactly. <laughs> there's no there's no escaping. You know, I mean, maybe the. Maybe the takeaway, uh, if I could try to be hopeful, is like, uh, screw them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Do, do what do what makes you happy. It does not need to compute. It does not need to sit in the spreadsheet neatly. You know, it makes me think of um, a, a poem by Wendell Berry, who we in the Doomer Optimism Sphere uh, sort of uh, worship, if you will. You know, uh, it says, as soon as the generals and politicos can predict the motions of your mind, lose it. Leave it as a sign to mark the false trail the way you didn't go. Be like the fox who makes more tracks than necessary, some in the wrong direction. Practice resurrection, right? So, um, you know, uh, be be defiant, uh, be resilient uh, for for your own for your own accord. Uh, you know, um, you can have aesthetic reasons for doing things, uh, and screw the naysayers, right? I mean, yeah, I, I'm, I'm. Look, I mean, if there's any, if I embrace any political movement, it's localism at this point. You know, I mean, I, it's like, you know, it's like. You know, it's this weird mixture of like, you know, um, I'm a weird mixture of kind of both libertarianism only in the sense because it's 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 not somebody who's going to come raid your farm and check how many times, you know, if your kids are riding bikes without safety helmets, 
Um, or plus, at the, um, at the same time, I, I'm a, you know, I, I, I'm not a particularly good, um, uh, good arguer for faith because I'm in heart uh, intellectually a scientist. But at a, at a scientific level, you know, faith is extraordinarily important. And so, um, you know, you know, I can't, I can't as a scientist go, you know, walk across 90 cities of the world and and then come not come away and say, wow, faith is really important. I'd be lying if I said that. And so, um, you know, uh, there there needs to be sort of like a recognition of the importance of faith, um, and the in recognition of the importance of of letting people, letting people decide. You know, so many of the convers, you know, so many of the things that people talk about in the United States these days is um, is um, you know um, issues like policing. And one of the things I look at like policing is. Please, Evan, you're asking, you're asking the federal government to, to regulate things that, that community should regulate. I mean, Amen. That, that 90% of policing problems is, you know, it's not, it shouldn't be the job of the police to, you can't codify personal interactions and where, where, where one goes right and where one goes wrong. That's just a local norm that people know. It, it, it goes back to your earlier talk about nuance. You know how people interact with each other is very nuanced. There's all you know. There's all these kind of unwritten rules of any community that everybody knows, and then people give themselves leeway over. Like you know, um, when you try to when you when you try to say that well we're going to codify them and the government's going to regulate them, you can't regulate that. <laughs> it's it's going to it's going to it's going to result in it's going to result in mispolicing. You know, and police have an awful job. You know, you're asking to regulate the, the, the something that should be shouldn't be regulated by them. It's not their, it, it shouldn't be their job to you know. To 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 um, that's local norms. Those were local, local norms to do. So you know, when, again, it's the it's the bureaucrat front row front row brain big uh, brain leads a bureaucratic state, which tries to codify things that can't be codified, written down things that can't be written down. Um. So okay, a lot of people who are fed up with the meaninglessness find us. And I don't know if it's like a real sociological trend or not. I just know that there are people out there who are like, screw this. I can't live like this anymore. I, I can't do the PMC thing. I have to like be more connected to my family or nature or whatever, like all these different sacred things that give people meaning in life. Um, my worry though, is that like, so I don't know, I, you know, I moved to Uruguay. I got onto nine acres. I never really called myself a homesteader, but it was just like, you know, I want my kids to grow up with some chickens in the yard and to experience this, you know, connection to nature. I want to spend more time with them than I see other professional women doing with their kids. You know, I want to raise them myself, this kind of thing. Um, and more and more people are getting onto this almost like a Twitter meme of homesteading which makes me worried because when anything becomes popular in the U S it becomes like commodified and then it loses all the sacredness. <laughs> and professionalized. So, okay. My question is um, we have a couple of like working class rural guys who are in our little doomeropism world. And they're always just making fun of these PMC people who are going rural and then they want to have like this lifestyle homestead farm and they don't know what they're doing. And then they, they make their own schools and they kind of have a segregated life um, in these areas and they kind of like are gentrifying it and taking away all the cute and, and sacred parts of that local community uh, by bringing their own culture in. That's bad. But the, my question is, um, you've been around, walking around, talking to people who are different from you, who are not front row people. What advice do you have 
for being respectful, empathetic. I, I feel like I do this too in my sociology and it's probably because I grew up working class. Um, my dad's a Chicago firefighter. So I know how to relate to people like, you know, a normal human being. Um, but do you have advice about that? Like, how do you, how do you, if I, if there's like all these people getting into homesteading, like what is the. Don't be a what, dick. Yeah. Yeah, simple. So, I mean, seriously, like when you move to a new place, you know, take five years and just learn, like shut exactly. your mouth for five years, man. You know, um, what, what, what the front row does, spreadsheet brain professional manifest does by definition, almost it's, 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 it's who we are. So it's, it's hard to stop ourselves. We're, we think education is a key to everything. So, so we, we see somebody who's less educated than us. We assume that we know better. We always trying to change. I call it intellectual colonialism. You know, it's like, understand your colon, your, your, you know, you're not very much, you're different because you have good, you may think of yourself as different, but when you go into a community where you're the outsider, just be respectful, man. Like, you know, just, just sit back and learn. Don't be a dick. Like it's, it's, it's just by very, you know, one of the things I've always done is I always, look, I know my, I know who I am, you know, at some level. And so when I walked into the Bronx where I was the only white guy, um, you know, the only person who had a, you know, and, and many of the people, the only person who finished, you know, middle school or high school for the people I was dealing with, um, you know, is to, is to not, <laughs> to recognize I'm the weirdo. Like, I'm the weirdo. You know, what, one of the things I, I don't know if you guys ever read The Lamp Magazine, which is a Catholic intellectual by man Matthew Walther. Um, one of the things I, I wrote for Peace Frame is like, I'm just, we're the weirdos. You know, we the professional are the weirdos. We're the we're the two percent of the population versus the ninety eight percent, and recognize that you're a weirdo and just kind of just try to you know be open minded um, and don't try to colonize. <laughs> you know, um, um, it takes a while to fit in. You know, I mean, I, I, you know, there's what was interesting is uh, do you, what's his name of the um, um. Sometimes it's sometimes for me being the only white guy in a black neighborhood. It's in many ways very helpful because my outside I can't hide my outsider status, you know, um, and so consequently it's it's just there on the table, and it's, and I and I deal with it very very directly, you know I'm the outsider and so um, you know and so everybody knows it and and so interactions go from that proceed from there but I I recognize it they recognize it and um, you know and in and in that sense um, you you don't try to lecture people you just <laughs> stop trying to lecture people. Um, I think in, you know, but in other ways, you'll be surprised how easy it is to fit in as you, if you just listen, you know, um, and you're not a dick. Um, and so I don't know if you can, I don't, I don't know how to like, you know, how to tell people how to like teach people, um, not to be a dick, you know, I mean, like just, just take a few years, uh, absorb it in and then, you know, and, 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 figure, and, and just be respectful, man, you know, it's as simple as that. It is, and it's, you're an outsider and you go in as an outsider um, more like, what can I learn rather what, than what can I teach, I think, is the main thing. Like, you yes, know, exactly. like, you, there, and I think the other thing that a lot of people don't realize is just, um, I wish people would open their minds to this, like the, the beauty and the sacredness in like local culture and knowledge. You, you go to any city in the world and everyone just is X the same. You go to the same kind of restaurants. Everything is franchises. Like there's no, nothing sacred about that. And if people could see how 
much, you know, sacredness and meaning there is and just open their eyes to that and that people want to let you in. Um, and I think they want to be welcoming to you if you have that kind of perspective. Like I think about like where I live in Uruguay, a lot of people are doing like small scale family farms. And um, like you said, the spreadsheet brain stuff, like more and more agribusinesses coming out and um, trying to take over there. But people like the knowledge these people have, like just walking down, walking in on the land and they'll point to a plant and they'll be like, that means I have some deficiency or that means I have, you know, this is good soil, blah, 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 that that plant is growing there. You know, just all that kind of whole embeddedness and knowledge is is so amazing. I wish people, even like in a small town in Maine, for example, where our friend Neil lives, um, there's something really beautiful and sacred about some of the ways of life there. And I wish people wouldn't come in and he like says they turn turn the local general store that's been a general store forever into like a like a hip uh, coffee shop with like trivia night. And he's like, I don't like once trivia night comes, like it's over for us, you know, it's over for us. I like it. So I don't know. Um, I, mean, I, think, I think like um, it, it requires a, it requires a sense of here's the problem though, and I don't want to insult some of your listeners, but um, I, but I think recognizing your own recognizing that you have a worldview that is very deep um is is kind of half the battle so you know it's i used to say that it took me at least four years to figure out that um i think these things are not necessarily you know you can't codify it you can't write it down it's very subtle but you know the, there are different languages. You know, the front row and back row speaks different languages. It's, it literally is uh, different languages. And so you, it takes a while to learn them. And so you come with a lot of biases um, that you don't recognize. Um, again, one of them is the cult of efficiency. Um, one of them is the cult of safetyism. Like I, I, look at, I look back at COVID and that's a perfect example of even me after all these years not being able to break the cult of safetyism. You know, um, this idea that and again, it's, it's it, you, you know, so it used to annoy me when people said, well, the back row just doesn't value life. No, no, no. <laughs> you know, it, you know, they, life is filled with risk for them. Um, it's not that they don't value life more. It's that they, you know, longevity and soul longevity isn't the goal. Isn't just, you know, there's a mental calculation. Like, uh, yes, you know, I can live to be 99 if I sit in a, you know, I sit bubble wrapped in my room, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> you know, so there's, there's, there's these, and it's not that these choices aren't thought about and they may not be thought about in a spreadsheet, but they're thought about in like, you know, um, do I do, what's the value of, you know, what's the risk of um, getting COVID versus what's the risk of, you know, losing everything that's central to me, my community, you know, when, when, when everybody locked down, um, you know, it was, oh, what do you mean? Just for three weeks, for three months, don't don't go to church, don't go to bars. Like what? <laughs> like that's 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 like you know asking a uh, a professional man your man your class is like stay off the internet for three months and 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 um you know don't lecture anybody. <laughs> like, like what? That's like the core of who I am. Like you know it's like it's like being fired from it's like a, a uh, you know a partner at a law firm being fired and being asked to dig, dig ditches for a while or flip hamburgers. It's, it, you've taken away their identity. And so um, you got to look at things in terms of like context and, you know, decisions. If you understand the kind of framework of people's um, um, context, their meaning set, every, people make, everybody makes rational decisions within the context of what, what matters to them. Um, and so 
when when an out when an outsider a PMC comes into a new place, you know, of working class, they don't understand the context. So they look at these decisions that people make, and they just say, "Well, they make dumb decisions." Well, no, they're making the right decisions within within their you know with what they value. It's, you value something different, and you have to decide. Ask yourself, do I do, if I value something different than they do, then why am I here? You know, um, are you gonna you can either fit in, and and learn to. Um, and, and try to learn what they value and see if you like it. Or you can sit there and, you know, and be the um, fish out of water and um, they'll, they'll end up respecting you in the end if you, if you just, you know, if you don't try to lecture them, <laughs> but, you know, and don't try to change them. Um, you know, don't try to, don't try to become a, a missionary, um, but just be kind of some, someone who does your own thing, you know. Yeah, it's like dial back the hubris <laughs> quite quite a few notches and, and you know, realize that humility um, can be a virtue. You know, I think um, in terms of rural gentrification, like I have a very simple solution. Like if you move there, you're not allowed to vote for 10 years. <laughs> like you just get you cannot change the political landscape that drastically. And, that, and that's a problem right now with COVID, post-COVID rural places, yes, there there is some repopulation, but it's entirely like a cultural gentrification uh, issue. Um, but I don't want to, I don't want to dwell on that point too much. Um, you know, we, we're coming up, we're past an hour now. I wanted to maybe spend a little bit of time just talking about, you know, next, next steps for you. You talked about how you sort of uh, leaving, leaving the U.S. or at least U.S. political socioeconomic commentary a little bit in your rear view. Um, Tell us more about you know your, your your next step, your next project. How are you selecting these these world cities to travel, and is this going to accumulate into another book or another project of some kind? Um, well, I, I'm doing a. I, I never intended my other stuff to become a book, and something that I ultimately did. And I don't really intend this one to be, but we'll see. But I'm doing. I, I publish Substack. I try to publish about a week every week, called Walking the World. Um, but. Um, how I choose places is, you know, it's kind of like how I choose places in the U.S. It's a combination of, um, I am a, I am a, I am a spreadsheet brain guy, so I do kind of like, I want, I want to give readers and myself a, a kind of balanced picture of the world, um, and balance is, means geographical, it means class, it means, um, it means, uh, and most importantly, faith. And so, in some senses, I'm kind of doing it based on kind of world religions where I go, um, and also cheap flights. I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a I'm very, very cheap in travel. And so I go in general, I go, you know, I, I look at fly, I look at flights a lot. I look at, you know, um, I look at places um, that uh, I can do these things inexpensively. Um, and so it also changes a lot, you know, um, I, I try to do, I try to jump around a lot so that I don't get too, um, too, uh, you know, too, too much of a singular perspective. Um, so uh, over the last year, I let's see, I've done. Um, I'm trying to think. I did. I did Kiev right before the war, um, um, and then I did Bucharest. Bucharest and Kiev because I kind of wanted a kind of um, a post-Soviet Eastern European perspective. Um, and then after, then I did Lima. Um, and that was simply because of a. It was cheap to fly. Spirit Airline actually flies to Lima. Like I, I never knew that. Uh, I'm I'm a big discount airline fan. Um, it flies for like three hundred dollars in Lima, so I went to Lima, um, and then after that, this summer I did, and then I did some places in the U.S. because I do have to be around my family now and then. Um, and um, then I went to um, this summer. I just I did I did um, a kind of around the world trip. I did Seoul for 
three weeks. Um, then I did Hanoi for a month and Hanoi was absolutely wonderful. And I can, I can talk for hours about Hanoi and what I learned there. And then I literally walked across England. I walked from Liverpool to Kingston upon Hall, which was uh, the first time I did a kind of three week walk where I didn't stay in one. Usually what I do is I, I find an apartment, a cheap apartment in a, in a, in a dodgy part of town and just kind of try to come, try to become to the extent I can as a local, a regular, you know, um, and so when I travel, I don't, you know, people ask me like, oh, did you eat in this restaurant? This one? No, I mean, I ate in the same nine restaurants every night because I like to be a regular, you know, because um, um, that's how you actually learn a lot. And also, I just personally, I like it, get to build stronger connections. Um, uh, and then I'm going down to Myrtle Beach <laughs> tomorrow. Tonight, I, I drive to Myrtle Beach because I kind of want to want to contrast kind of American consumerism, you know, because at the back of my mind is also this, we have, a, you know, I don't, I also don't want to romanticize the working class necessarily as well. Like, you know, um, you know, the, the kind of transient materialism I'm talking about is also being driven more and more by the working class, you know? Um, and so it's not like everybody, uh, everybody wants to, you know, live in their rural communities. Some of them want to go to Myrtle beach and get a mega mansion and, you know, and play putt putt golf and go to twin peaks at night. You know, so, yeah, we've uh, had a few fights in the Doomer Optimism um, universe about Walmart, um, you know, because yep. a lot of us are like, don't go to Walmart. But then the working class people say, you know, that's, that's all I can really afford. So I'm going to get and then they like post pictures of them drinking a Slurpee just to troll the mean, local food people. One of my other kind of like standard lines is in it. And I, I make more fun of the front row for this, but it's to some degree you can make, you know, I mean, I, I would guess that most of the people in this community are also front row. We're all PMCs in some level. Um, you know, the most diverse physical, the most diverse physical spaces um, in America, where people, you know, are, are places that are considered um, um, uh, profane, McDonald's, um, Walmart. If I go into a community, and I want to see like a perfect example is when I was spending time in Lewiston, Maine, um, you know, there's a Somali community in Lewiston, Maine, and then there's, you know, Quebecois community. And, um, it's easy to find both in Lewiston, but you don't find them mixing very much until you go to the Walmart. <laughs> you know, if, if I go to, you know, Utica, New York, and I want to find where the Bosnian community is there, I just go to McDonald's, I go to Walmart, that's where they are. You know, they're shopping. So, um, but, you know, there, you know, there's a love-hate relationship. There's recognition that um, um, it is inexpensive, it is cheap, um, but it's also very diverse. Um, and um, so, you know, again, it's like you, you can't necessarily fight something that exists um, and it's not going to change. Um, but um, so I'm going to Myrtle Beach to kind of write. I don't know. I never know what I'm going to write about before I go. I mean, that's kind of the hope. But, I, you know, what I what I imagined I would write about is kind of the contrast between my around the world trip and then going coming into the U.S. and, and seeing this kind of, you know, the kind of. Um, how people party in the U.S. Um, um, and also, I like the challenge of walking, you know, a twelve-mile um, strip of waves, um, um, waves, uh, surf shops, and 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 titty bars, and and medieval times. Um, and so, and then I'm going to go to Istanbul for two and a half weeks. That was also just uh, Istanbul is one of my favorite cities in the world. I'm I'm writing. I've been thinking a lot about. Um, writing something for a Catholic magazine about how Muslim, the Muslim religion is, um, does a better job of what 
um, traditional Catholic Catholicists here in the U.S., the right-wing traditional Catholic Catholicists want, well, if they want it, the Muslim faith is doing it. So I'm going to go to Istanbul. Uh, I had spent uh, six weeks there before, and I want to go, before I was doing all this, I want to go back. And then I'm going to add, you mentioned Detroit um, in October. I'm going to, um, I'm going to fly to Detroit, and then I'm going to do a combination of Greyhound buses and walking to go from Detroit to um, the Tex-Mex border. So it's going to take about a month of, um, of um, it's nominally based around the idea there's like three swing districts. Um, there's Michigan 8 district. There's a camp. There's a, so I'm going to basically go from Detroit up to Flint via some version of the, the I have to I have to get from Detroit to um, the Tex-Mex border and I have to do it without um, any cars or any planes. So that's the some combination of buses and, and Greyhounds. And then um, then I'm going to go to Bishkek um, for a month. And again, this is a combination of just post-Soviet um, as well as Muslim um, and also it's cheap. Um, and then I'm going to go to Amman, Jordan. So um, that's kind of where that's kind of it's up to change it. But in terms of having a having a framework, I mean, I guess the, the framework is kind of um, um, kind of somewhat built around world religions in some senses. I would just add, um, as we're wrapping up, um, I think there's another thing that's worth saying out loud. Um, so after I graduated college, I went and did these like world tour type things like on the cheap, saved money, nannying, cash, you know, lived in a sublet and then went uh, on these like overland trips with my boyfriend at the time. And I just think a lot of people don't realize what agency they have. And this is such a cool thing that you do, Chris. Um, and I think there's like a lot of young people. I have friends on Twitter who like post about like deep in anthropological literature. I want to tell people like, you can go be an anthropologist. I mean, you don't even need yeah. to go get your PhD. You can go and live in Ghana for a while and just see what's going on there. Um, there's nothing really, there's still a lot of adventure out there. And I think a lot of people don't realize how much agency they really do have. And I have never said that on the podcast before, but I think yeah, if you want if you want a good starter city in terms of like it's got safety, it's very, very interesting. It's got the world's best climate. It's one of my favorite cities in the world is Quito, Ecuador. Oh yeah. Uh, I would encourage people to like, you know, it's not going to be stunningly expensive to go. Um, but you know, you, you can, you know, you can, you can find an apartment for pretty, for like 15 bucks a night. Um, and, uh, it's a great walking city. It's the temperature is always the same every day, 68. And you have a, it's very, and, and don't be scared about going up into the Hills. People are like people, one of the things that people travel is, um, and now this is easy for a male to say, and it's different for a female. So I'll admit that, um, um, but if you're a couple, especially, um, don't be, you know, when people travel, they go to the same, like, uh, Hanoi is a town of, um, I think 25 million people and it's, 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 it sprawls. I was there for a month and I literally walked through every neighborhood except the tourist downtown. Like, I, I don't need to go there anymore. I know it's going to be, it's the same everywhere. You know, it, it, it's, it's kind of like, you know, Vietnam for the tourists. Don't, I mean, get beyond the, you know, do your museums if you want to, but then get beyond that. And you'll be surprised. And 99% of the time, it's safe. And there, I'll just briefly say, it's also very much aligned with a lot of our principles that we talk about on here. Like, you know, uh, go see the world for, or interact with the real world. Be, let things emerge to you. Interact, with, you know, whatever something emerges, respond back to it, whether it's in your work or your personal life or whatever. I think the spreadsheet brain mentality is a little bit like, control everything you know everything in advance you know exactly how everything's going to yep. go and it's so much more interesting to try something different 
interact with the real world and then like adapt to it. Yeah, so I mean, when I one of the things I do is I I got to a new town, I literally walk across it. I mean, not everybody has the you know necessary. I walk the 15 miles north south, 15 miles east west, and then I kind of refine that walk based on what I saw. But the other thing I do is I literally will jump on a bus and not know where it's going, you know, and um, and just get off randomly and then walk back. So I think there's a lot there's a lot to be said for that rant. Over over planning is a bit of a problem. All right, awesome. I think maybe the, the parting thoughts are uh, do do things that don't compute or don't fit in a spreadsheet and don't be a dick. Yep. <laughs> uh, so we appreciate your time very much, Chris. This has been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Um, we'll be sharing it out to the world as soon as we can. Okay. And we look forward to following your travels on the next journey. All right. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thanks Thank a bunch, you. Chris.